1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: Sands Pants Radio, Australia's happiest podcast network.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demirellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, uh, we have a. She started off in Canada where she got her PhD in biomaterials, uh, but now she is in. You've already made it sound like I may have gotten something wrong, but <laughs> we've got. Yep. <laughs> I can change this. I can edit this afterwards anyway, so that's a good thing, but anyways, she, okay. she got a PhD and uh, now she is at ANU. Uh, Dr. Kiara Bruggerman, how are you?
0: Hi, I'm good, and thanks. And hey, you can correct
1: all the ways I got that wrong. Okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I got my PhD in Australia. I did start out mm-hmm. in Canada, did a degree in nanotechnology engineering, if you want some fun sounding yep. words, and then moved to Australia for PhD. Oh,
1: okay, right, right. So I got the timing there wrong. Yep. Oh, actually... Yeah. That, oh, this, this is a fun way of saying it. It's actually, I don't mind keeping that in. Okay. Yeah. So you've got so yeah. many words in that intro actually already before we even go to the, the book and stuff that I think it would be good to get some clarity on because, yeah, both biomaterials but even nanotechnology sounds like something people might want to know a bit more. So, yeah. Could you give some more color? On that? Yeah,
0: yeah. So basically, I am an engineer doing medical research. So it's a kind of different approach mm-hmm. to medicine. And what I... What I like to say is I'm I'm working on getting your brain on drugs, but therapeutic drugs and only injured brains or brains suffering from neurodegenerative diseases. And the idea is that instead of trying to build artificial brain tissue to try to like fill the gaps when your brain isn't working properly, we want to get the body, the like your actual cells, your brain to regenerate itself. And how we do this is with stem cells. You may have heard of all the wonder of stem cells. They can be anything. They're full of potential. They're the miracle cure. And stem cells, that's sort of true. I think of stem cells as tiny teenagers. They're full of potential. They could be anything they want. But left to their own devices, they're lazy. And they do not do much. (laughs) So they need the right environment and a little bit of a push, a kick in the pants to to get them going and doing the right thing. So we create a supportive environment. I'm going to kind of shift or actually stick with my teenagers analogy. If you imagine sending teenagers off to university, they learn, they become functional adults. But it's not all like the the actual university buildings, they do matter uh, as COVID and lockdown has taught us, (laughs) Um, there are some things, you know, as a chemistry student, you just learn chemistry better when you have a lab environment, you have equipment there, you have infrastructure there. Um, So that, that physical space, the building and the properties that are in the different buildings, those vary um, for different types of students. And similarly, it varies for different types of organs throughout your body. So if you think of the cells as individual people, there's a thing called the extracellular matrix, and it's all of the infrastructure of your body. It's the stuff, the environment in which all of those cells work. So like a university or like a city, you perform different functions within different buildings. And, you know, doctors on their own would be good, but doctors in a hospital <laughs> are much, much better. You, But a hospital on its own without doctors won't do anything. So what we do is we make the nanoscale infrastructure, that extracellular matrix. Instead of trying to replicate artificial brain cells we don't do that we just make the brain environment so we set the stage as it were we and we don't do it nearly as intricately as actual brain tissue but we provide just enough of the right cues so very much setting the stage we get the key elements that we know the cells are going to pick up on to interpret their environment and realize or (laughs) we trick them into thinking that they are in brain tissue and then they'll act accordingly so we give them a a nice shelter, a physical support, and really strong peer pressure cues that they should behave like brain cells in particular. Uh, so then if you plot those stem cells into your damaged brain area after, say, a stroke, and you do that with our materials, with our fake brain environment, then they'll actually regenerate much better and they'll start to really become new replacement brain tissue. Um-
1: that sounds amazing, like as a technology. I didn't yeah, know we, it's very cool. Like we'd come that far, I guess. Is that an actual thing that's actually like now being done or is it still in the research stage?
0: To some extent. So all of these technologies, they very rarely is it a real step jump. It's much more often a continuous improvement. So there are some treatments, some like clinical trials in cell replacement therapy, which is the, adding the stem cells, Um, I think there are some currently used applications. There definitely have historically been some applications where stem cells get used for real therapeutic benefit. But our materials as well, the ones that we're making in the lab today, they're not currently used in hospitals, but materials very similar to them are. So the ones that are in the hospital now are kind of similar-ish to a brain tissue or to real brain tissue. The ones that were used 10 years ago were a little bit worse. They're kind of like special effects in movies. Like the idea of special effects today look really good and really realistic. If you look at a movie from 10 years ago, they're not as good at mimicking what the real thing should look like. And 10 years before that and 10 years before that. So it's, but it's not that they didn't have special mm. effects. So similarly with the medical technology, it's, it's it is there. It's just not, as good as it could be. And we're working on making it better and better. And my work specifically is working on hiding therapeutic drugs within this material and programming them. I sort of attach different little molecular tags and molecules that have other properties onto these drugs so that I can control when the drugs will kind of diffuse out of the material because getting drugs, therapeutic drugs, into your brain is very problematic in different ways to getting recreational drugs into your brain. Um, Your your brain has
1: different,
0: different, totally different types of problems. So with the therapeutic drugs, the issue is that it's difficult to get them into your brain, because your brain has a blood-brain barrier. Uh, It's very picky about what it lets into the brain tissue, because brain tissue is very important and, and delicate. So actually getting drugs into the brain tissue from an IV is quite tricky. So normally you get drugs in an IV, they go through all of your veins and they have some sort of targeting group on them that will cause them to latch onto whatever organ actually needs them. But with your brain, there's a barrier there. A lot of drugs can't get through the barrier. So you can directly inject them, but you don't want to like keep stabbing your brain because every time you physically stab your brain, you cause a little bit more damage. There's risk of infection. It's just unpleasant. I mean, we've seen how reluctant people can be to get stabbed in the arm. Imagine trying to get them stabbed yeah. in the brain every week for many, yeah, no, many no. weeks. In
1: terms of the mind control stuff, <laughs> conspiracy theories, I feel like we wouldn't be helping him much. Yeah.
0: It's like this literally in the brain. I know. It's- um, so, though, like, as speaking of conspiracy theories, yes, so my first degree was nanotechnology engineering. And now I build, you know, I, I make these nanoscale, highly complex structures that I stab into people's brains. This is pretty much a conspiracy theory.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. You're part of the system. Yeah. They're, they're yes. starting to <laughs> tell everyone. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's unbrazen um, brazen now, to be honest. You could at least pretend... Yes.
0: I'm just thinking of the, so it just took me my whole PhD to come up with sort of three different time frames of drugs being released. So I, I have these drug molecules kind of hidden within the structures. Uh, some of them will start diffusing out right away because they're just kind of stuck to the surface, but they'll, they'll come off when they're in your brain environment. Some of them are very much on the inside and it takes them a while to like work their way through and come out. And then some of them are on nanoparticles that react in response to a particular trigger. So if we shine UV light on them, then they wiggle around really energetically and the drugs come off of them. So it's got, I have my short-term, long-term, and specifically trigger-controlled release of drugs so that we can have different drugs get to your brain tissue at different times. And it's like, you know, if if you're building a brain, uh, it's rebuilding brain tissue or building some new brain tissue. It's, it's a complicated procedure. Um, it's even more complicated than IKEA furniture. And with IKEA furniture, you know, you, you do step one and then step two and then step three. You don't just do it all at once. So similarly with the drugs, you need to have the therapeutic drug number one come first and then number two and then number yeah.
1: three. Makes sense.
0: And then you know when we get a bajillion, we'll get the mind control going on and the five G signals yeah, and all still that. Still,
1: at least a year or two away yeah. from that. But yeah, <laughs> that's,
0: that's that's at least. <laughs>
1: Possibly quite a bit <laughs> <Yep>. longer. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> the, so I get like uh, the whole range of questions related to that. So I guess firstly, just to uh, probably get in my head. So when you talk about the structures that you have, these nanotechnology structures, um, those are actually in the brain. So you're not growing the stem cells outside and then getting the stem cells put in. You're actually putting that all together in the brain at the same time. Is that And is that done through surgery or is that actually just injected?
0: Yep. Um, so those those structures, the really complex ones, exist within your brain right now. Or at least within my brain. I don't know about your brain. Oh, I, don't, <laughs> um, I don't even know but... what that means. <laughs> it's like, I'm looking yeah, at you. Know. you it feels like on... such an odd yeah, burn. You're like, oh, I'm going to insult the extracellular matrix of your brain. Oh, doing <laughs> that. Look at that mustache.
1: That is not an <laughs> extracellular matrix that's uh, got a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you call that fibrous? Yeah. Ah, ah, ah. I feel unprepared um, now. Yeah, so the, the... <laughs> Wait till we get to the book talk. I'll so come those... back at you. Don't worry. I'll <laughs> yes. come back steaming. Yeah. So those structures are in your brain and, and all of the lovely audience's brains and my brain. Um, and then in the lab, we make structures that mimic that as closely as possible. We're trying to match the chemical properties, the physical properties, the biological properties, the general shape properties, um, all of the pretty much every ology. So like uh, oh, and then I start that with chemistry, but by bi- biology, morphology, or shape, all the different sciency words. I the matrix.
1: I've got to say, it's... Yeah. <laughs>
0: So we we try to match it on all the different like types of scientific properties we can. And then yes, then before going into the brain, we put some stem cells into that goop. It, it very much it looks like hair gel. It's a it's a squishy material. Um, because your brain is squishy, and we need to match the the stiffness of brain tissue uh This is actually what better place for a tangent than a podcast yep. about books. The stiffness of a material is one of the more important properties in directing cell behavior so you'd you'd think it's the biological things you'd think you know brain proteins or you know some sort of actual brain molecule that's the key thing. But stiffness is so key. So as cells move around their environment, they sort of like reach out, grab hold of something and pull themselves forward. And how much resistance they get tells them what type of tissue they're in and therefore what type of cell they should be. Because like teenagers, they just want to fit in peer pressure and they're like, oh, I'm in. So engineers in the past, like bioengineers and humans in general, we like to make things Superlatives. We like to make the strongest, the tallest, the biggest, the mm. whateverest. Um, so we've we've made materials that are too strong, and and you implant them, and then because they're quite stiff, the cells interpret them as bone tissue and are inclined to form new bone cells. And the most hilarious, I think, implication of this, and it still happens to some extent to this day. Uh, it's hard to fully avoid. Um, but artificial breast implants are designed to be squishy. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're quite squishy because breast tissue is squishy. Um, but to make sure the actual implant thing itself is is structurally sound, the, the membrane around it is a little bit stiffer. It's a little bit more robust so it doesn't, you know, pop and leak and stuff. But that's the part that cells interact with. So when you have these artificial breast implants, then... At the boundary where cells interact with them, they do start to form little bone cells and little bone growths because they're too stiff. Ah. Um, so this is like one of the reasons why some implants have a, a lifetime on them. You say like, this will be good for like 10, 15 years, but then we should take it out and replace it because you can start to oh, induce the wrong type of cell behavior. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that's, hilarious. That's okay. Right. That's... I know. That one makes me laugh so much. <laughs> including in my very serious lectures when i'm talking about like how we ensure biocompatibility of our implants and our like life-saving technologies and all the students are very serious and they're there to save lives and and i have this example like if you get fake boobs you'll grow bones in your chest anyway very serious talk back (laughs) Back to 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 saving lives back to the blood yes saving lives very serious very serious um, so we we have our material that's kind of hair gel like because your brains are squishy and we want to make cel- make sure sorry that the cells experience that squishy environment and we don't grow bones in your brain. Um, so it looks kind of like hair gel. Plop the stem cells in there, shake them all up. Our material has some really cool properties where it it's a self assembling material and it shear thin. So if you shake it up, it experiences a lot of force, a lot of shear forces. And it kind of disassembles, but then reassembles when that force isn't being applied anymore. So we can have this structure, put the cells on top, shaky, 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 and then the cells kind of integrate and the structure kind of reforms around it. And similarly, we can put it in a needle, apply the forces of a needle and it flows like water. But then once it's in place, it kind of stiffens up into that jelly hair gels consistency and it... Kind of in, it builds that structure exactly in the inter or injury site of wherever it was that you had lost right. some brain tissue. That's which is very cool.
1: cool. Like, I mean, the yeah. this might answer another question which I've always wondered, and it's it's so dumb, <laughs> possibly. Um, <laughs> so, because you talk about like injecting it, and it's kind of reminding me. Uh, you mentioned the jab already, and I've always thought it's strange how like they just jab it in you. <laughs> it's like, because I've had like blood taken, I've donated blood before. And like, that's obviously a very specific spot. But with the jab, it always feels like they're like, ah, eh, rough area. And I was like, yeah. I guess the cells just take it in from wherever. So there is, I'm using that example just because, so with the brain as well, it's not actually, it, you'd think it's like needle point accuracy is needed, but actually they grow themselves in there with that accuracy. Is that right?
0: Sort of. So we we tend to look at, case uh, conditions or injuries where there's a very specific injury site and before we stab in our new science stuff you you sort of scoop out the dead brain tissue so there isn't there's is an actual void right. so some of the tissue has just totally atrophied you've got some brain cell corpses hanging out totally killing the mood inside your brain so we <laughs> go in we scoop them out there's, the, there's a little void the in there
1: some youngsters to start the party again I get you yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah pretty much yeah like time to clean yeah. out the dead wood. there we go uh, and yeah. So we, we do have to inject the, the whole substance into a very specific spot. So where that injury is or where the cells that are affected by that particular condition is. Um, so some conditions like Parkinson's disease affects dopaminergic neurons, which are the brain cells that produce dopamine. So you would have to implant the material in where those cells live so they can get the new cells. So we are quite specific about where we implant it. Once it's implanted, then it sort of it fills that whole space. And filling that space is very important too because we need to make sure that it integrates with the existing brain tissue, that it doesn't just like, here are some cells that are alive and here's the rest of your brain. We need to make sure that the new brain cells actually integrate with the existing brain cells. So we need to go right up to the edges. And is that
1: um, integration, that's part of the plus side, I'm guessing, of stem cells not getting rejected or anything like that? Is that, they can be, like, is that a thing or is that my...
0: Yeah, there is. So... If they if, if they come from you, then you're much likely much less likely, sorry, to get an immune response from them because they're recognized as as you. If they come from another source, there are potential immune issues. We we tend to work our materials are in this wonderful semi synthetic region. Um, so within biomaterials, there's kind of two main ends of the spectrum there's totally synthetic materials which are very very controlled you definitely have nothing in them that could be objectionable but they're obviously weird and foreign not asbestos yes asbestos why do i think something else asbestos is a great example of this (laughs) in my mind there's there's some other material that i'm trying to think of Um, but it's just these like little tiny fibers and you you know it's a bad thing asbestos is bad for you But it's the way it works, it doesn't actually do anything because it's just super, super inert. And your immune system recognizes it as weird and different and says, like, ah, I don't like you go away. And it does nothing. Uh, So then it brings in the like kamikaze immune cells that like charge at it and basically explode on it, trying to let their like acidic corpse juices degrade the weird foreign invader but it just continues to not react because that's all it is it's just very inert and you end up what causes all the damage like all the medical problems is actually the result of the immune response to the thing not the thing itself because it's just so inert and so An yeah weird yeah so it doesn't do anything yet as a result of it you have all of these issues so within biomedicine, you have to always be mindful, not just of like what your material is, but how it will be perceived by the body. So just- to, um,
1: yeah, definitely we're already on this tangent anyway, and I just have to ask, because yeah. I, I think nanotechnology can be- like, I don't really fully understand. And obviously we could talk about this for 10 years. I'm sure you've done lectures on this for hours and hours. But essentially, because <laughs> right now we're down at like the cellular level is what we're talking about, or even small. I don't know how small we're going here, or molecular. So with yeah. nanotechnology, like- what makes it, like, because when you're down at that level, what's the difference between something that's alive or something that's dead or something that's, you know, like, as in it's just a chemical at this point, isn't it? So, like, or am I wrong in saying that? Like, that's why, yeah, yeah what is nanotechnology?
0: Sort of, yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's actually a great way to say the other end of my my spectrum of materials is natural materials. And they definitely don't, like, they have all the complexity of a biological material, but they may bring with them some impurities, and this is kind of what we're talking about at that level. Like we're dealing with molecules; they're they're definitely not alive. But the the misconception is it's it's very small, and our molecule of interest is very small. But the thing that we're implanting is actually like bajillions of molecules because it's a needle full of material, and it has bajillions of our molecule of interest—the thing that we actually want to be there. But it may also have all of these other little side impurities. So actually making up a full needle's worth of something that's specific down to the molecular level is very tricky. So our synthetic materials, we know that everything in that needle is this particular molecule. We have very precise control, but you can't do a lot of complexity with that. I think of it like painting buildings. Um, so if you like, if you're working at the molecular level, you have like a paintbrush and you need to paint a building, you're going to paint like one color. It's just going to be like a big roller and you're just going to do blue. The whole thing is blue. We're just doing blue. You're not going to paint like the Mona Lisa (laughs) across an entire building that is way too complex. So biological molecules, because they're made on the molecular level, they're able to apply that level of detail. So they have this huge amount of complexity, but we can't really fabricate that level of complexity at the scale that we need, because we need so much more. We don't need just like one cell supply of this particular protein. We need heaps and heaps and heaps of it to supply to all the patients. So the semi-synthetic region, which is where we operate, is kind of a mix of those. So we take, instead of taking materials from biological sources, and this is, this is the stuff that, um, I don't know how much... We'll go with uh, lots of <laughs> lots of biological molecules that you buy from like chemistry, chemical providers are refined down from some sort of animal. So we get like chitin and chitosan products from like shrimp, like the shrimp cell or shells. We kind of like grind them up and process them and try to get as pure as we can this particular protein out. Um anyone who's got a fancy shampoo that has keratin, the actual protein in it, you know, it, it comes from somewhere. It's not built up into keratin. It's like, I don't know the process of where they get it. I assume that they sort of, I don't know, grind up hair and eventually try to extract out the hair protein. Um, we get like collagens and gelatins from like bits of pig skins and things. There's lots of, they come from some very complex biological source and we try to filter it down to get to a purity, but there's always some impurities. Then the synthetic side, you can control impurities. You have no impurities, but adding complexity is very difficult. So you can, you can add some complexity. Biological materials have heaps of complexity but if you remember, cells and stem cells are lazy. They don't actually look at all of the complexity that exists within a biomolecule. So they, they very much judge a book by its cover. And of a given like protein or something, some sort of signal that they would look at and recognize, it'd be like, ah, oh, this is a brain protein, right. I see. They don't look at the whole thing. They look at one tiny piece of it. And that's a piece that you can control. Yes. Right. So, we, we don't synthetically make full brain proteins, but wonderful, hardworking biological researchers have, well before my day, isolated the really small piece of the molecule. It's about, I'm going to tell you, a protein is something like 6,000 units long, and this piece that they recognize is five units long. Okay. So, it's a very small piece of it, and it's small enough that we can Synthetically make it in a lab. I say that it's still a two-day process to make it in the lab. It's very
1: grueling. Ugh. We've gone so long, and I, I do want to talk about it because I think that technology might relate somehow to what we're going to talk about. But let's go. And there's so much more as well. But look, we should do the book first before going back and forth. So your book of choice for today is
0: The Way of Kings, the first book of the Stormlight Archives by Brandon Sanderson.
1: Very exciting. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. The uh, I just you told me you were going to pick this book and uh, your love of Brandon Sanderson. And I actually, thanks to you, I actually read (laughs) the second book in the Mistborn series just then. I just finished it yesterday. So you reminded me. I'm like, I should read one. It's been a while since I read one of those. Yeah. Yeah. So- uh, For a quick summary for anyone, uh, Stormlight Archive is uh, Brandon Sanderson making his... It's almost... It's like high fantasy in terms of what people think of when they think of like Lord of the Rings and all that sort of thing. But it's very much a fresh take on it that I really, really rate very highly. Um, Yeah, it's a fantastical world. It doesn't make any sense scientifically, I would probably (laughs) say. But it's very well realized and the characters are brilliant and it's very good pacing.
0: I I will say um, Brandon Sanderson is you know particularly known for hard magic systems so his magic systems have very specific rules and limitations they're a little bit more like some of the superpower or like X-Men movies where people have like very specific abilities as opposed to you know Lord of the Rings where Gandalf can do anything uh, and there may be rules I'm told that if I read the Silmarillion there are some defined rules in there uh, but Sanderson's magic systems are quite specific you know you you can um, you know, if you've, you've just read Missborn, you know, the idea of if you have this one particular fuel, then you can push on any distant source, any distant metal with effectively your body weight. So it's like you're standing there, but that's it. You can't, you know, you don't make it explode. It doesn't glow. It's just you can apply force at a distance. Mm. Uh, and it's very specific. And when he's talked about world built or not world building um, magic systems, and the sort of spectrum from a really hard magic system with really clearly defined rules to the the more mysterious sense of awe and wonder, Gandalf can do anything. Magic systems, noting that they're both wonderful. They both. Oh, have their your place. tone of
1: derision does not indicate that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I definitely have a preference. You, it's
1: true. you sound like you've got a very clear preference. But anyways, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There are some really good far end ones uh like Neil Gaiman books are very kind of just weird and all over the place but it sort of works but yeah I definitely prefer the hard magic systems. And when he describes that spectrum, so he puts the sense of awe on the one side that's the not quite described ones and science or magic as science on the other end, which I love. So magic as science is is how he writes books and science as magic is pretty much how I live and view all of my work and research and he specifically says you don't want your magic system to be entirely right at the edge right at that magic is fully science. You want to leave some things unexplained in order to write an engaging book because you you have most of the rules set out, but there'll be one or two things that don't quite make sense. Um, in the Mistborn series, there's the like, why does the 11th medal not fit with the other ones? Why does it not quite fit that structure? There's mysteries yet to solve. There's information that you can gain. And that that journey, that learning and figuring out how it works and fitting that last puzzle piece in to fully understand the world is really exciting and enjoyable. And that's exactly what science is. <laughs> that's, like, we have a lot of the rules. We understand a lot of the relationships. But there are still some unanswered questions. And figuring out how it works, those last little puzzle pieces, is really exciting. Mm.
1: No, that's... I mean, that's... Yeah. Uh... You've highlighted a thing I never really thought about, actually. And your and your take on it is because, like, now that I'm thinking about it because I've actually looked at it through that framework. Um, like the thematic or subtextual way, you could almost relate mag- uh, magic is like, yeah, two wildly different things. Cause one is almost a a view of like, it's very yeah mystical. It's 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 not religious, <laughs> let's say, but spiritual. It's very uh, not specific. <laughs> yeah. It's more artsy, I guess I would say, and then yep. you've got the hard one, which yes is much more materialistic and clearly defined. Which people don't realise the variation that can exist in fantasy. Interesting that you've got. Like, firstly, I guess have you always loved the hard magic stuff? Was it something you like noticed forever?
0: Yeah, and I think part of that is very much my my y self. I I like to be able to you know, understand why they would do a sort of thing. And I like to be able to say, you know, So, sometimes some books have really obvious plot holes uh, in terms of the magic system. And I want to, I'm going to try to clear the derision out of my tone. And I'm going to start with saying, I legitimately love Harry Potter. They're great books. They're super enjoyable. I've read them all like seven times. They're fabulous. There are some gaping plot holes at times where, you know, if, we we're introduced to some spells uh, that then we kind of don't use later on. And like, this was the core spell of this, of book four, but none of the later year students in any of the earlier books ever think to use it at any point. Cause it can't get introduced yet. Cause it's a book four thing. Um, mm. So I, I like with hard magic systems, you can, you can try to think of what you would do in that situation as well and you can say like oh well clearly if you can do this you know do that it's a little bit more like playing a a game a bit more like a video game i guess like you can and then you can see sometimes the the characters will come up with something clever and you're like oh i see how that's a really clever application of these rules and you could have figured it out yourself even if you didn't um whereas with the the sense of awe magic it's like ah the big bad guys here well just Spread your arms wider and be more dramatic in your gestures. Like that's how you're gonna win. Yeah. <laughs> so, I like being able to work out the process of how things are gonna happen, and I think Brandon Sanderson's really good. I haven't yet found any any major sort of well. If you could do this, why didn't you think of that thing? Uh, and I like sometimes he throws into the books things that you are thinking. It's like, well, I'd try this, and then it turns out to not be the answer because that is very much how discovering science works <laughs> you you have some ideas they are not always right the first time and then you try some new ideas <laughs> and so i like to see the characters go through that as well yeah
1: yeah that's a look uh, it's cool because i did, she just had a scientist on uh recently and uh, she was uh, she liked sci-fi for the hard mm. sci-fi sort of things or it's like relates to science in that sense but it's so interesting another scientist yeah. on who likes fantasy but it's kind of similar reasons in a way just a different yeah. like outlook on it um i do think though okay so here's the thing See, so here's the thing, which isn't actually true. I'm, I'm just totally winging it with this. But basically, <laughs> Sanderson, I think, uh, as politely as possible, I would say, is a psycho in terms of like the the level no one I've ever seen. I don't think there exists. I, not that I know everyone who writes, but I don't have never seen someone who has that kind of output that he has. It's completely at, at another level to what... Like it's great. Like the size of the books that he's bringing out almost every year, and they're good. Yes, it's yes, it's insane.
0: You kind of think that you know whatever his brain drug delivery method is, I need to figure it out. How he's producing how's he it? Doing yeah, it?
1: that's you got to get. You got to take it out of there. That's who you yeah. just jab it and take it out. But like, I think a part of that is to do with the fact that from again from my analysis of it, he does seem to have a very clear idea of what he's doing. Like, as in in terms of he's got. And, like, this goes into it. So, the thing about Brandon Sanderson is he's got, like, several book series now, and then they're actually all connected within this larger thing called the Cosmere, I think. Is that right pronunciation? Yeah.
0: yeah. Which is, like, the book equivalent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that idea of the multiple parallel storylines and different characters. Yeah, yeah.
1: Which are all kind of... And does this include that, that sci-fi one that he's doing as well, that space one?
0: No. So, there are a couple that are outside the Cosmere. Okay. Um... Who are that are just also awesome, but they're they're not Cosmere. Are you
1: sure they're not Cosmere though, or are they going to be?
0: Yeah, yes. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He, did, he, In addition to putting all this mate like, he produces so many books, he's also very good at, like, there's all these extra wikis and Word of Sanderson info pages where you can go and get things clarified and answers questions. And you, so you've got gotten, it gotten clarified. You're like, I need to know. Yeah. <laughs> Is this relevant to the wider universe? Should I yeah. be taking notes
1: or not? Yeah. Where do I file the notes I'm taking? <laughs> <laughs> So what are the series that are – just quickly, what are the series that are in the Cosmere? Obviously, there's Mistborn and Stormlight. Uh, So there's
0: the Mistborn and Stormlight Archives are the only ones that currently have multiple books. Mm -hmm. Elantris is another world within the Cosmere system and Warbreaker. So those are two standalone novels that could potentially have future novels later. And there's a a short story, Sixth of Dusk, that takes place on another planet and another – it has a long title that's very – it's like shadows of silence in the forests of hell. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's such a, I love fantasy it's not a normal. <laughs> fantasy title. Um, but it takes place on on yet another world that we doesn't have a novel set in. And so each world has its own kind of magic system, but they do all relate back to this like core fundamental story. Mm.
1: Yeah. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Which is like, so what, what I was going to say, and like, I think, we, yeah, now we're going deep into fantasy talk, actually, rather than this other side. Yeah. So, like, firstly, I think I didn't, so I love, like, right now I grew up loving fantasy, um, and then I kind of went away from it. And then, so now I'm not as much reading it as I used to, but I still love it. And right now, the only one I'm really reading is Sanderson, because... They're so long fantasy books. I'm like I can only squeeze a few in in between everything else. Uh, but he's so I only recently read uh, finished the Wheel of Time. So I start that was my first book. I read the first nine books in that like about so many times. A crazy like I to the point where yeah. I could still remember it like twenty years later. A lot of this stuff from that which is wild, and it was interesting reading that and then reading. Like, it's a very rare where you get to compare an author with another author in, a, like, an apples for apples, like, as in it's the same story. Yeah. So, you really get to do a clear comparison. And this is going to go into the point I think I'm trying to make, um, which is that I reading Sanderson's take on Robert Jordan, which is a whole other Wheel of Time, another fantasy series fan on who's listening, which is kind of yeah. closer, more to the Lord of the Rings style than what Sanderson's yeah. now doing. But it, anyways, but the same sort of thing. But reading how he did that made me actually appreciate Robert Jordan a little bit more and maybe not appreciate Sanderson a dash less because I could see the f- flaws in Anderson a bit clearer because of that. Ah. Yeah. So like, the and the reason, and I think this ties into it all and his work ethic is that he's... Amazing! He's absolutely brilliant at making a plot that you just can't put down. Like he he knows how to and tie it all together and it's so well struck. Yeah. He's a very – the way he writes is like this guy is mechanistic in how he's putting this together. Like, These are slots that he's slotting together and it's got it on a board. And like for him, I wouldn't be surprised if he knows exactly what's going to happen in all of his books for the next 30 books. Like, isn't that's how well detailed yep. he has it. And now he's essentially just channeling that, which – to me, is wild to me already as an author where you're like, the story's done and you're just, the only constraint is your hands yeah, getting that out of you and into the page and comparing it to someone like Robert Jordan who is very meandering and very slow and kind of all over the place and figuring out as he goes along. But because of that, he has more of a sense of like a world in terms of its feel, I guess, a sense. Yeah. And the more I looked at it, I was like, and the one that made me think of it more um, and you can maybe have an opinion on this is the because uh, I'm assuming you've read Wheel of Time and you read,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yes, I have. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the I know we're meant to be talking about Stormlight, but it's all connected. <laughs> this yeah. Is, oh, yeah, what he did to Matrim Cawthon in Wheel of Time was a disgrace almost to the point of it destroying all three books. But at least, look, I'll give him credit, he did his best. But that's when I realized Brandon Sanderson can't do comedy <laughs> at all.
0: Oh, that's no, I feel totally the reverse. Yeah. I I suddenly loved Wheel of Time when Brandon Sanderson picked it up, and Matt Cawthon specifically. I loved how like the change in wittiness of the character. This is so
1: interesting because that's obviously like oh. a my, mentality thing. Because I think of univ. I thought it was pretty universal. The ah. dislike of what happened to Matram Cawthon in the uh, Wheel of Time, specifically. No um because no i'm not saying that i didn't like i, I really love sanderson and especially the last book is like a wheel of time is ridiculously yeah. good because again it's his, it's like he's he's it's like he's making crack cocaine of fantasy like you cannot put it down it's a brilliant and he knows how to tie it all together and the way he has character arcs so very well cleanly done it's very great to read and so I've, i'm not putting him down in that sense at all and i still think he's amazing but i think it's so funny you're saying that, because I feel like that was, and I like from what I'm reading, everyone yeah. agrees on that's the biggest issue that they yeah. had with it because like he didn't know how to do the sarcastic, cocky, overconfident guy who's also actually quite sweet and funny. So even though he's coming across maybe like a dick, you always know that he's not. I felt like when he took him and tried to do the same yeah. thing, he ended up looking like a dick and you're like, oh, actually this doesn't sound as fun anymore. This sounds like kind of mean and yeah. kind of petty and not as funny i guess so yeah. yeah that was the vibe i got the you school. didn't get that
0: i've yeah and um in addition to the super prolific writing output sanderson also lectures a course at a university in the states and yeah, yeah <laughs> and those lectures are up on youtube which i've recently oh, discovered and i've sort of binge watched a lecture series because that's <laughs> kind of like uber nerding so it's like my my nerd self's favorite fantasy author teaches a course on YouTube, so let's watch that in our spare time. Let's binge it. Let's go through all the lectures. And and one point specifically when he's talking about humor is it's very, you know, everyone has a slightly different humor, like sense of humor, and you're going to, you're not going to get everyone, and what wins some people is going to lose you some people, and it just, yeah. So I think he would agree with you, even Yeah,
1: and, I, like, and this is like, I yeah. think... Uh, this is almost—it's so interesting because it's like this is the insight into the brain. Or, I'm getting inside to your brain almost there because like <laughs> I think the issue that he has, and this isn't a—and again, you're watching YouTube videos, so I'm definitely cu- approaching this with nothing but respect. Okay, yeah. I, actually, I'm interested now to get your opinion on Missborn. I don't know how deep we should go into this <laughs> fantasy books. You know what? Just quickly, my issue with Missborn uh, in general as a series. Okay, again, I'm approaching this as someone. It sounds like I'm talking to a real fan, so the, I, I actually really—I really like Missborn, but I feel like the thing I noticed reading Stormlight first, which I'm glad I did, and then Miss. Born was that it feels like he was working through a lot of the cliches in Mistborn versus the more clearly original stuff he was doing in Stormlight. And just in terms of like mm. plot-wise, it feels like it's a little bit more contrived in Mistborn. Um it feels like it's hitting he's almost he's still doing the he's in many ways, he's doing the classic cliches, but doing his own take on it rather than Stormlight, where he's actually really doing his own thing. It feels like, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, I know with Mistborn, it was a... Or the objective was a... The official term being a strange attractor thing. So it was meant to be a heist and a fantasy. So mashing up the those two classics or cliches, if you will. Um, but putting them together. So possibly that, that makes sense that you'd hit some of the things that seem a bit cliche. Because we want to make sure that... Or he wants to make sure that it is... A fantasy heist heist that takes place in a fantasy so you have to make sure it's definitely a fantasy and make sure it's definitely a heist Mm, uh, maybe yeah uh whereas the whole stormlight archives gets to be a full super uniquely developed very big elaborate world um as a oh you can't see my erratic hand gestures here saying as a weird awkward segue um I like that you've mentioned cliches because this is another area where um, his his writing and, in particular, his lectures about his writing match up interestingly with my work and my lectures about my work. Okay. So I lecture engineering, and I found it really interesting going through the lectures on writing fantasy. How many similarities there were between write like structuring a fantasy story and novel and doing engineering projects. So one quick point, this is probably part of the reason for the high output that he has as an author. Like he is very structured and systematic and has that view of stories, like he can put them together in a systematic engineering-y type way, uh, which I love, obviously. (laughs) And talking about, there was a question from the class when they asked, you know, how do you do something that's been done before without making it cliche or too cliche? And he was, this is the bit that's. it seems very specific to literature, like writing, how do you avoid cliches? But actually, the fundamental answer is very, very similar to the engineering design process. So with a cliche, the idea is it's something that's been done a lot, but it was initially done a lot because it serves some purpose and it was a very good way of achieving that purpose. And then it gets to a point where, you know, everyone's doing it and you're doing it because it's the thing that's done rather than because it actually serves the purpose, like it, and it addresses your needs best in engineering. We talk about the difference between system requirements and design requirements. And I have a project that I have one of my courses do where they, they build a robot to navigate a maze. And when you talk about it as a car, so if you say like build a robot car, this is your your project uh, you need to like build this robot car and it's going to take you know some material from the start point solve a maze bring it to the end point what what are your requirements what do you need in this design and they start listing them off and, you know we need a power supply we need blah blah, blah and we need wheels And if you talk about it just as a robot, and you say it needs to transport things from A to B through the maze, you don't necessarily need wheels, you just need some way of moving. So, you know, humans move, and we don't have wheels, we have legs. So a a design requirement is a requirement that you need if you're going to go about solving the problem using a particular design. So if you have in your mind a car, it needs wheels but you don't actually need wheels to solve the problem. Mm. So the problem is just get things from A to B. And so you need some sort of transportation, but you don't necessarily need wheels. Now in this particular project, wheels do serve the purpose best. So they all end up using wheels. Yeah. Some of them have flirted with the idea of getting like robot drones and things, but it ends up being wheels. But that idea of... Doing something because it's what you see people doing versus doing something because it's actually the best way to achieve the goal that you have or to, like, serve the need that you have is very much the same in engineering versus avoiding cliches. And I love that kind of parallel. And in both cases, I think it's it's an extra skill to be able to see and be aware of how things are often done And kind of look at that systematically and say, look, this is the way things have always been done, but what element of that is actually necessary and applicable in my situation? So, for my story or for my engineering project and separate out what you've seen before in order to come up with something that works and is new and original and isn't just what you've seen before.
1: Right. Yeah. So, I guess that's like, uh, whatever, from everyone here, that sounds like the first principles thing, like going back to the fundamental, what are you trying to do? So you're yeah. trying to get wheels, you're trying to move a thing from here to here or like, yeah, you're trying to get the character to grow or something like that. So yeah, I oh, know that's okay. That's an interesting, uh, it, well, actually, yeah, it's funny. You're looking at Sanderson, he would be the best person for uh giving that fully detailed engineering perspective on it all. Um, yeah. So, okay, so... Here's the thing. So, And I, again, I'm coming at this from a position of liking Sanderson, like loving Sanderson. I really love his work. He's the only fantasy person I'm really reading at the moment. Uh, so yeah. whatever, everything I'm saying, it's coming from a position of, you know, someone who likes him when I'm being crit- oh, not yeah. critical, but just pointing out certain things I think I've noticed. I think uh, I'm being so careful now because I've seen, <laughs> as we talk, the more I'm realizing how much you, <laughs> what kind of fan you are, which I totally get because he is brilliant. And I, I'm very excited to- put it all together i think one of the things as well though is because he's so mechanistic or engineering based it's interesting because even his character's growth which i love it's very clearly defined and very much and that's what i think another gift of stormlight versus Mistborn is probably because because he seems to have written himself where he's like oh the story's about vin in misborn mm-hmm. you it's harder to have a character arc that has a clear middle and then a clear resolution which he he's great at with all of his books always have seen or well, the ones i've read anyway seem to always have that, so I think maybe he put himself in a bit of a corner, having the one character across the whole series, and then having that desire to put in a very clear, you know, arc in the book as well. I feel like that's where Stormlight has an advantage because he can just, you know, switch the character in that. You've gone quiet, like you've yeah. got an opinion here.
0: <laughs> oh no, I'm just just thinking. Um, I know the the first draft of the Way of Kings had didn't work at all because he tried to put in all of the characters at once. So if you've Gotten a few books in, you know, each book kind of focuses on a few, main, maybe like two to four main characters that we're going to look at experiences from their point of view, and they have major development. But then in the next book, we, we shift and we're now looking at, you know, what's happening with these other characters, because there are quite a few main characters. And the first round of writing the book, he tried to kind of start all of the characters and you just couldn't fit in a large enough chunk of all of them, and it was just very hectic and all over the place. So I guess, yeah, Way of Kings is that nice middle ground between we're really focusing on one, and we have enough going on, but not too much that it's too hectic.
1: Mm. Yeah, like, we are getting... (laughs) To be six thousand pages for one book, yeah, yeah. I yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> yes. that's, yeah, well, that's because he loves putting that in. So that's why. That's the only thing I felt, especially actually with the second book in the Mistborn series. I was like, ah, oh, this feels like he's stretching a bit to make this arc work. And I was like, that can't. Not in about. Ba- Still good. Still good. Yeah. Let me clarify. <laughs> okay, but just compared yep. to how well he made it all feel seamless in Stormlight, that's the only. If I was going to say a little yeah. complaint there, that's all I'm saying. That's all. I'm saying. I know with
0: Stormlight as well. He's. He's gotten it because a lot of the characters in Stormlight have various um, mental health issues. um, And he's dealt with them as a writer by getting in mental health experts. So like people who have seriously dealt with in the real world post-traumatic stress disorder or i'm not going to give away a bunch of them because you're going to start getting spoilers of who might be suffering <laughs> yeah, from I think what you can
1: throw one or two <laughs> in if you want just to give more okay. range
0: yeah um definitely d- depression and um multiple personality disorder mm. and making sure to write them accurately and deal with them accurately and not just hollywoodly but noting that in these giant epic fantasies the the bo- each book is huge and there are going to be 10 of them you have the space to not do a quick band-aid but really explore how these conditions will impact the character and how they will operate differently and how you won't you know fix things in a quick happy blockbuster moment but that it'll be an ongoing thing that will continue to affect you and you'll have to develop and and change and heal as a process, mm. which I think is really good. I like that he routinely does seek outside expertise. Again, a very engineering <laughs> thing is to sort of like know the bounds of your expertise and then integrate with other people who have different expertise in different areas. You have different people design the electronic systems and the mechanic systems and do the programming. And so he gets in that expertise. So I think in, in Stormlight, yeah, you get to do more in depth, development of different characters so you can have you know if you don't like one there's going to be another one that's going through a very different journey and that journey is informed by people other than brandon sanderson because he has not got lived experience in all of these things
1: yeah no he's easy and like actually (laughs) on that note uh speaking of that as well one thing i've noticed i think because of uh wheel of time what he did there with rand in the second last book and it's that made me realize he actually does it quite a bit which is another example of not Hollywooding it, is sometimes I really like, I don't know how often he does it, I just noticed it a few times he's done it, where like instead of the character having a big moment of realisation, it's like done and he's fixed. A lot of the time, or, or she, like both sides, but like is in a lot of the time mm-hmm. it seems where the character will have the moment, but then they won't realise then. And then there'll be like a chapter where they kind of just go off on their own and think. Yeah. <laughs> and then they kind of like slowly actually reflect on what's just happened and then slowly piece it together. I'm like, that is so much more realistic than the one moment. Yes. Yeah, like I, I really, I didn't realize how much like I rate super highly that, like he likes to do that where the character's like really takes a while. Like in it's just slowly connecting dots to kind of put together. And it's like, yeah.
0: I really, I love that so much. That is one of the reasons I love Brandon Sanderson. And I think it's very useful. I'm going to come across in this next example, I say as such a typical nerd in terms of not having great, interpersonal skills and everything i i like following along with the characters as they work through these situations in a fantasy setting because i think it's a really good way to kind of interpret your own life issues and remove all of the specific context so whenever you as a person in your real everyday life have you know you have dramas at work or you're not getting along with this friend or you have relationship woes or whatever it's it's difficult to separate the issue you're trying to focus on from all of the other aspects of life from you know living in covid times or rising property prices or whatever it is that's you know impacting you but in a fantasy world you're not ever going to be experiencing a lot of the issues that are going on, you're not going to have to live through high storms, these super powerful magical storms that ravage the world of Roshar in the way of kings. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to be living under the Lord Ruler, the su- <laughs> like thousand year old super magical dark Lord being. You You aren't going to have to deal with those. So the only element that you're going to relate to is the human element. And you'll be able to relate to kind of create a, I'm trying to think of, you know, those like, code seeing glasses where they have like different colored lenses or something but if just the overlap like the area where one lens overlaps the other lens and that's the only bit that you see clearly yeah. so when you kind of compare your life to someone in fantasy world's life the only common elements will be the human experience elements and you can really look at them and examine them a little bit and you can do more the, clearly yeah, you can actually
1: div- you can remove all the context which can confuse things in a way like yeah, yeah. okay well, it-
0: so i quite like i like you know reading fantasy books to better reflect on you know how i feel about things in my life and you know how other people in my life might be experiencing things
1: mm. and- okay that's a, i mean that again that's an interesting saying that obviously because uh, it is the work of one author who uh, yeah. who is like trying his best don't get me wrong but it's actually it sounds like you and he uh, might sink quite a bit in how you think. So maybe this is, it is helpful yes. getting that insight in a way. But I have
0: often said that I would like to live inside his brain.
1: I think you are already. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that'd be a great place. <laughs> like, it sounds like there's a lot of similarities, right? I've got to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to structure- I did.
0: When I was growing up, I like quite early in school, maybe like year seven or eight or before you've really decided on a career, you're still taking every subject. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't decide. I wanted to be either a writer or a scientist. And my reasoning for those two was that those are the only two fields where you are not limited by the world as it is. So you can make things, you can do the impossible in writing. You, you write it and you make it up. Mm -hmm. And in science, you make it happen. You make the impossible possible and went with science but I do think, yeah, I'd I'd like to think. I feel like it's a little bit cocky to say, oh, if I were a writer, I would definitely be, you know, like the most successful fantasy writer of our time. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there would be a similar sort of thought process involved. Involved, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's fair enough. That's 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 yep. not approaching it with hubris. I think that that angle, yes. yes, you can say you'd you'd look at it the same way. I guess, Ed, yeah. like. I feel like it have gone so long. There's so many topics we can talk about. You've made me... You're hitting like one of my childhood obsessions, fantasy and that, but also then the structural... Yeah, the mechanistic view because I guess... And this is... Just to go back to again because I just find it so interesting is, um, again, coming out, approaching it with all the love for Sanderson and I think he's great and I think he's going to be... The reason he's so good is because of his output. But I would say the gap, which I felt and it's interesting because of how you looked at it even with Matt Cawthon and that that view there as well. But like... He is there something lost, and I don't know if there is, but is there something lost in like because even it talks about George R. R. Martin. Let me give that example, right? Yeah, the, the most, the biggest fantasy author in the world right now, thanks to the show, yeah. I'd say. But uh, he, his whole thing is like he likes to try to figure out where he's going to go, but then he starts writing and he can end up on a huge tangent as he like lets the characters be themselves and kind of he can go off and do, get lost in the weeds, which to be fair, has ended up in probably a series that's never going to get finished, Um, (laughs) sadly. But there is an art in that. There is a a human element in that almost that maybe Sanderson maybe doesn't
0: incorporate as much. He, he, He does admit to being an outline writer. So saying that all writers will be somewhere on the spectrum between an outline writer where you're very structured, you make a really detailed outline, you know what's going to happen when, and you put in like a bajillion dot points and st- until basically every day it's like, okay, I'm going to write, you know, a page that addresses this dot point versus a gardener, which is very much like George R. R. Martin, who has to, you know, take the story where it goes, let it let it flow, let it happen. Um, yeah, and I, as probably elements of personal preference in there as well. I really, really like understanding my world. I like seeing where things fit together. I like not having loose ends and unanswered questions. That's very much why I'm a scientist and an engineer. So I imagine that for some people, if you don't really, really think that way, then yeah, you, you miss kind of the, the artful meandering whimsy that you would get with some other authors. But it doesn't have the same value for yeah, yeah, yeah that I, I can appreciate it sometimes, but i I you know those uh the, every now well I don't know what your Facebook feed is full of, but I will sometimes get the pictures that are you know satisfying images for people with OCD and they just show like all the pencils lined up exactly perfectly or i I get that satisfaction out of. <laughs> Um, Brandon Sanderson books. Like everything makes sense, everything lines up. It all works out. Yeah. It's nice.
1: Uh, it's it's look. It's sounding more and more like uh, you might need to be a character in one of his books, having
0: the, <laughs> the issues resolved. <laughs> I do think I I picked The Way of Kings because Shallan is the character of his with whom I most identify. So she's, I mean, she throughout the book kind of develops a relationship with her little magic spirit buddy, and. She's very scientific about it. She's a bit of a whimsical artsy character herself, but fundamentally a scientist. And she does make this clear. So she's very artistic. She's always drawing things. That's the one point we don't share. Um I'm I'm creative and colorful, but I'm terrible at drawing.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Very presentation. Yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, but she she talks about even though, you know, she likes art and she's good at it, and that's a skill she has, what really drives her is the, you know. Curiosity about the animals that she's drawing. You know, how do these whatever funky birds fit into the ecosystem? Like, how do they work? How do they operate? In that scientific curiosity. So she's a non-traditional scientist, which is very much like me. It's you know, I'm I'm fun. I'm colorful. I like doing lots of crazy stuff. But what drives me fundamentally is the curiosity about how things work and trying to figure them out and trying to you know see what I can make happen, what I can put together. And when she meets up her magic buddy, she's very scientific about it. So she's like, you know, initially investigating what works, what doesn't, taking notes, seeing what they can do, taking measurements, (laughs) being very methodical about exploring the magical powers in the relationship, which is absolutely what I would yeah. do. I mean, her spirit animal is a geometric pattern, so. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that too. That would
1: totally be my spirit, buddy. And I feel like the need to clarify to people because they can't see you right now, but uh, when you say colourful, you very literally mean colourful. <laughs> I don't know how yes. many colours are going on in that hair of yours.
0: <laughs> oh, it's, it's a full rainbow uh, and it's it's the, the red to purple full rainbow. And I have a black and white dog, just to contrast. Nice.
1: Okay. Right. 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 That's. Uh, so, and you wear grey? I guess that's the only thing left now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do have some grey. I, I find when I wear muted colors, people ask, af- like, they get thrown by, it and they ask me if I'm feeling okay, and like I look sick because I just spend so much time in super bright neon colors. Right.
1: Right. But, right. Okay. Yeah. That's. We uh, so, have you got it. Like, yes, your placement there, because I guess that that is uh, your personality versus obviously the field you're in which can be quite stiff and all that
0: yes so i i am an i'm a well i am a lecturer in the school of engineering at the australian national university i am not what you picture when you think of an engineer
1: no um (laughs) like which isn't a bad thing at all i think it's uh yeah and i and is that always a conscious i'm guessing that was always part of what you were and then you just married the two or was it something you felt like Almost- yeah,
0: I well, I grew up in a in a family of engineers in a town of engineers. So science was always very fundamental and key uh, in, in like my whole upbringing. Just you know answering questions, being methodical methodical about getting answers, getting knowledge, and then the the being crazy and and rainbow and stuff. That was just you know my natural personality. I think that's what happens when science is accessible to everyone and just there and not something that you have to try to fit into. So if you're trying to, if you're coming at science and engineering from the outside and you just see what it looks like and you you feel like you need to see or be the kind of engineer that you see, then you end up that way. But if you grow up in a world where, you know, everyone is just embracing that science and engineering is fun and interesting and let's explore, let's ask questions, let's follow our curiosity then there's never anything stifling the other aspects of your personality. And, and you realize that, you know, engineers can be real people too. <laughs> um, interesting as well. There's a quiz you can take online that, you know, like online quizzes, um, but it's, it's produced through Brandon Sanderson's website. And it's um, which type of night radiant would you be? So for <laughs> listeners at home, the, there are 10 different, I think 10. Oh, if I get this wrong, I'll feel oh, very wow. bad. Yeah. Um, 10 different types of magic users in this world in the in the way of king's book and the stormlight archive series and they the people who get the particular magic buddies that bestow these particular magic powers have to exemplify certain traits so it'll be the the really honorable noble people tend to attract this particular type of magic buddy and thus get these particular magic powers so you can take the quiz and say sort of based on your pe- personality which one would you be? Much like a which house at Hogwarts would you end up in. So I would end up apparently as a will shaper and they are described as the engineers of of the world and in particular he talks about they the kind of individuality is really important to them so some of them will look incredibly flamboyant and colorful because that's their, you know, personal preference. And some of them do look very reserved, very gray, very unassuming because that's their personal thing. And it's, it's that idea of you do it because it's who you are, not because it's who you're trying to be Mm. and who you are will inherently vary across the group. And I love that. I love that I ended up in that sort of personality element and value system.
1: Oh, look, I'm going to have to check, check this out after we're done. Yeah. I'm curious now. <laughs> I don't know, like, see where this lands. Um, oh, fuck, Okay, look, I think we're going to have to call it just because we've gone on very long and <laughs> couldn't even go. Yes. I feel like we could be here, honestly, all day. It's been, uh, yeah, so I guess, yeah, oh, look, I know, I want, to, I want to keep talking. I want to hear about you lecturing and maybe yeah, some of the stuff like being a woman in STEM and whether that's had an impact at all or whether that was a noticeable thing like, let's do that just quickly before you go, just cause I'm curious oh, yeah. because it is something which obviously uh, uh, it's improved significantly over the years, but I'm wondering whether your engineering growing up helped with that. The fact Has, that you never even yes. confronted it as an issue.
0: Yeah, so much. So I, I definitely have encountered it as an issue, but it's almost like I got to be inoculated against it because my initial, like, formative years when I spent most of my time at home and social media was not a thing, um, I was, like, I was raised as engineering and science were my bread and butter. Like, it's it's who I am. And by the time I was experiencing, you know, people making assumptions based on gender and and kind of social pressures to do particular things, it was... Like, I could observe it from the outside. I was sort of shielded against it and just like, oh, it's interesting that you make that assumption because that's, you know, clearly wrong. And no one will ever be able to shake that fundamental belief in me that I am a scientist and engineer. That's so who I am. Um, Mm. That, yeah, I can see it from the outside. So I've definitely had experiences. There have been times like we, my, university that I did my undergrad in, we had student shops that were really extensive. They were they're kind of before makerspaces were a thing, but a a sort of pre-makerspace. And engineering students had access to it, but other students didn't because it, you know, it's a lot of upkeep to maintain the facility. So that's fair. And I snuck my partner of the time in and they ID'd me to make sure that I was an engineering student. And they didn't ID him. <laughs> they we're just standing right beside each other, and sort of. I don't know whether to be happy or sad because if you did ID him, you'd you'd kick him out because he's not an engineer. But also, like you're clearly making some assumptions here. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I I make a point in all of my public or at least you know my lectures where where I'm a visible engineering person to not just be the male, pale and stale kind of engineer. I'm very, I let the me show through and mm. I think you you can absolutely be yourself and yourself can be feminine and still be an engineer or scientist. There are lots of things that maybe suggest and, and hint subtly that if you want to be a woman in STEM, you have to kind of give up on being the woman part. You have to stop being feminine, stop any other pastimes, stop wearing pink frilly skirts. Um, but that is not the case. You can still be feminine. It's sometimes hard, but we're making progress. Yeah, um, and <laughs> that's a look,
1: that's great. Honestly, yeah, yeah.
0: I was going to say on the flip side, just to kind of possibly close off on a wonderful note of the the fantasy things. Yep. Um, my my other kind of hobby in the meantime is to do medieval reenactment sword fighting. So I, I also, <laughs> in addition to the You know, experiencing presumptions about whether or not I'm an engineer or my quality as an engineer based on being a very, very feminine looking and very whimsical looking engineer. I also literally fight swords with the big boys and encounters sometimes some people make some assumptions about my ability and skill with a sword and quickly learn the error of their <laughs> oh ways
1: what a, what a what a physically satisfying way to correct someone's assumptions that you do not get his yes. stem. so <laughs> that, is, uh, that is a nice way to tie it off okay um, i guess we'll, go, we'll have to call there yes because i do feel like we could chat all day uh so i'm um, thank you so much for being on and uh yeah that was really (laughs) very fun chat um is there anything you would want anyone to follow like anything you want to shout out i'm not sure there's anything at all
0: oh yeah i should have thought of that beforehand i suppose i can oh yes i can say me follow um on instagram i am at the rainbow scientist yeah that is me that is where all of my worky science stuff lives okay cool
1: so that's on instagram Yep. yep. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes anyway. And I'll also cool. probably put a link to the quiz for <laughs> the notes rated because I'm just <laughs> curious. Yes. I'll definitely be letting you know what I get. Um, so, okay. okay, well, awesome. Uh, that brings us to the end, I guess. So, yes, thank you very much for being on. Um, yeah, thanks a lot.
0: Okay, thanks. Sorry. Cheers. Bye.
1: Bye. <laughs>